Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and today I am joined by Terry. Hello, Terry. Welcome back. Hey, Warren. It's good to be here. Welcome back to the podcast, at least. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining me today. We're going to talk a little bit today about Genesis, specifically kind of some overview stuff about Genesis, at least kind of maybe some authorship things about Genesis, and then some some things about Genesis 1. And so, Terry, I knew you had taught a class about Genesis in the past and it's been something you have you have studied and thought about and taught. So I thought it'd be good to have you on to, to think about this with me today. So thanks for spending some time and thinking about it. Didn't you, uh, you I think when y'all did a Sunday morning class on Genesis, I think you told me you, you, you were in it for about a year. Isn't that right? I, I think my basic premise was to do one chapter a week, which uh, I think there's 50 chapters. I, I should have looked that up, but I think there's 50 chapters if I remember right. But uh, let's see. Yeah, there's 50 chapters. So it pretty much guarantees almost a year right then. And so that I gives you a year of material. I didn't realize how long a year to do one you know, Bible study was, but... Uh, uh, it was good. It was really good. I, I think I was ready to end the study. Maybe everyone in the class was long ready to end it. But uh, Genesis has always been one of uh, maybe maybe my favorite book, uh, but it's certainly one of the, just when you think about the the great stories of your childhood. So many of them come out of Genesis, and so it, it was a fun study. Um, and studying it as an adult with decades of kind of uh, Bible understanding under my belt uh, was very informative and uh, it reinforced many of my earlier uh, teachings that I that I had uh, had but it also maybe changed some perspectives as well studying it again um, more recently yeah and so much of our uh, theology and thoughts about God really are tied to Genesis, whether we sort of into in d- directly connected to that or not, there's, there's just so much just in the ways that we think about scripture, about God, about people, about sin that, that goes back to even just the very beginning of Genesis. And, you know, I'm, I know I've talked before that I'm a fan of the, the Bible project videos and podcasts that, and that those guys do. And, I was listening to one of their podcast episodes recently where they went back and were in Genesis 1 again. And one of the guys said, it seems like we always somehow end up back in Genesis 1. It's like, yeah, well, it sets everything up basically there from, from what follows. And so there's so many so many threads and themes and, and ideas that that are introduced and started there that do carry through to, to the rest of, of what we have. So it's good stuff to go back and, and revisit. And so the main thing that we want to do today, I wanted to talk uh, a little bit more about a couple of things specifically. This may shoot us into some other areas of, of conversation, but specifically today we're going to focus on kind of authorship and, and then on Genesis 1. Because we're going through a series where we're kind of looking at the beginning chapters of Genesis, starting with the creation story and some other things that we read then in, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis looking at some of those stories, looking at how some of those threads are picked up there and continued through the rest of Scripture. And I talked this past Sunday a little bit about authorship of Genesis 
And mostly in the sermon on Sunday, I kind of stuck to what are some implications of that idea? How might that influence how we read the creation story in Genesis 1? And so today I want to go back then and focus on, okay, so what are some of at least the internal evidences in the text that would point us in that direction? And we're going to kind of stick mainly to that because you could get really deep and technical with some of this stuff about dating manuscripts and word choices in Hebrew and all different things like that. But we're going to kind of mainly stick on stick to what do we read in the text and what what clues can that give us to to dating and authorship and, and maybe why why are there at least some internal evidences that would suggest a different author besides Moses in a later date. And part of why I want to do that is because I do think it, it influences how we read the book, but also because I think if you're, if you're like me, I sort of just grew up with just sort of this ex, accepted position that, well, Moses wrote Genesis and in, in the, the Pentateuch, and, or the, the, the Pentateuch being the first five books of the Old Testament. And so anytime you start moving maybe toward a different thought or different perspective, it is good to kind of do a little bit of, of thought about, okay, so why, why is that being suggested? What, what evidences do we have for that? Those types of things. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on that today. Don't know if that's interesting to everybody, but <laughs> I think it's at, worth spend, it's at least uh, worth spending a little bit of time on. So before I get into maybe some things in the text that I think point to that, uh, Terry, I'm curious to know, as you did your study or as you either did that class study or study of your own, do you have any thoughts about kind of authorship or have your thoughts around that shifted or changed or what have you kind of seen in that area over time? I think as we start to look at kind of internal evidences for authorship, it's helpful to look to see what does the Bible specifically say. And I think what happens is we tend to uh, co-mingle sometimes statements about the law of Moses or the books of Moses and and look at references say from uh, Exodus uh, Exodus Leviticus Deuteronomy um, and um, and we love in Genesis is part of the Torah so you know by you know it makes sense that the first five books the Pentateuch the Torah that whatever you think about Exodus and those books that include Moses, where Moses is a key figure, Genesis gets slumped, is connected to that. And so a lot of, a lot of the internal evidences really don't really speak about the authorship of Genesis as much as it does just the Pentateuch in general. And because Genesis is part of that, it gets lumped into that. But I think as we look at the individual references that are internal in the scriptures of Moses being the author, or at least one of the authors, um, that most of that refers to Exodus on. Um, but again, we'll, we can get into that more. I will say that it wasn't until you mentioned that um, you wanted to talk about authorship that I remembered the first time I'd ever heard a conversation about authorship being anybody other than Moses was um, I went to a very traditional, very conservative Church of Christ growing up. 
Uh, I did all the Bible Bowl things, all the where you memorize and you actually compete to see who knows the most about the Bible. So it was a very competitive base of Bible study. Uh, uh, and so having come from that, I thought I knew a lot about Scripture. And then, you know, right off the bat, I go to Baylor, a Baptist university, and you're required to take so many hours of Bible. And so in my Old Testament uh, survey, uh, the professor I had actually had written the book that we were using. And when it looked at the authorship, uh, it gets into what I later learned to, uh, was known as the documentary theory or hypothesis looking at different sources. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that. It made, I thought it was just total nonsense that there was, you know, that this is silly. You know, it's making a whole lot to do with uh, just some semantics about the way words are used and totally ignores the inspiration of Scripture. Well, I, I think over time, I've, I, I don't know if I add, I, 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 we can talk a little bit about that theory of authorship, but uh, I've learned to not have all of my faith uh, elements kind of grouped together as being equally weighted. Like my belief in who is God, my belief in Jesus, what Jesus has done, my belief in Scripture as a whole, the, the belief in why I exist. All those are more core beliefs. And then things like authorship are important, and I enjoy talking about them. But, you know, whether Paul wrote first and second Timothy is not critical for me to understand some things about uh, those books. Uh, and, you know, if you look at something like then the Gospel of John, and all of a sudden you start paying attention, depending on the translation you have, and certain stories are completely omitted, like the woman caught in adultery. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, the oldest manuscripts, doesn't, they don't have that story in there. Okay, now what do I do with that? And those things could really rattle my faith. Uh, but I've learned over time to just say, huh, that's curious, study that. But to know those are elements of my faith that I can grow and my understanding can change over time. But they don't change my core beliefs about who God is, the nature of Jesus, and Scripture in general. So that's a long roundabout way to saying, I'm glad we're having this conversation, but I don't want it to rattle anybody's faith. And I think our faith should be based on foundational truths far beyond uh, who wrote uh, specific books uh, and being able to, you know, nail that down with 100% historical paleological, archaeological evidence, you know, that supports yeah, that's, that. Yeah, I think that's, that's good perspective. And I think, you know, again, just as kind of a, a reminder, I, I do think that's part of the reason I wanted to, to just flesh out some things in a little more detail is, is in part because I think for some of us, it's just kind of, it was accepted for a long time that it was Moses. And so, so giving some evidences, if you're going to suggest something different, I do think it's helpful to at least say, okay, so how, how could you get there? How can you get to a different conclusion? What points to that? And so again, we're just going to kind of scratch the surface of that today. 
And But I will include in the description of this episode a link to an essay that's written that fleshes out stuff in a lot more detail. So if anybody wants the longer version of this that gets into more of the the history of it and manuscripts and different stuff, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll provide a link to that. But I also do think, kind of to what I said in, this, in the sermon this past Sunday, that it does, to a certain extent, it influences how we read it and the perspective that we have on the story, or at least it can. And, and you know, I know, Terry, one of the things that we have, you and I have come to kind of say about a lot of this stuff is that this is how, this is how I see it or read it currently. This is, this is how I have come to see it now. It may not be how, I've always, how I will always see it or understand it. And I think kind of that, that attitude about faith that you described does keep us open to new information and, and keeps us curious about Scripture and about how it connects to us and how we grow in our faith because none of us believe exactly the same thing we did about a number of issues you know, over the course of our lives. We, we learn, we grow, we change our thoughts, uh, opinions, and, and so it's helpful to, to walk through some of these things. Even, as you said, and as I mentioned Sunday, we don't have to nail it down in order to get something from the beginning of Genesis. That's, that's not what we're claiming at all. I would also say that the Bible is intended to be studied and uh, interrogated, if you want to use that word. You see uh, in the New Testament where the Berean you know, church was considered more noble because they really studied the scripture to see if what Paul was teaching uh, or what, what they were hearing was accurate. And you know, I think that's another, uh, maybe one lesson we can learn from Job is God is big enough to take questioning and you can dig into these things. And uh, that is being faithful. And you and I have talked about the rabbinic tradition of really digging in and trying to, or as they say, midrash, uh, really wrap your head around difficult concepts or look at things maybe in a fresh way uh, so that they're more relatable and uh, impactful to the people of whatever day you're, you're writing in. Uh, and so I, I think the Bible is totally strong enough to be interrogated in any way you want to do it. Uh, but, you know, I, I think uh, what I saw a lot was that any time anything was questioned, whether it was authorship or those passages, like I mentioned, like the woman caught in adultery, anytime you bring those up, it's almost like you're questioning the inspiration of Scripture or you're saying, well, the Bible's not true or God can't be trusted, and, and that's not it at all. Um, I think all you have to do is pull up multiple, maybe parallel translations, and you can see that there's a lot of editorial and and, and interpretational license that's taken because we're we're a culture that's you know separated from many of these writings by thousands of years with a different with different languages different understandings of god and so it to help us even understand what what the bible meant even at that time we need help to understand what, you know, if nothing else, just the language translation, much less all the cultural translation. And uh, I know this is not part of the podcast, but um, depending on when this comes out this this week, uh, my wife and I will be doing um, just kind of a quick summary over our trip to Israel and just 
seeing how just even seeing the land and walking in that space really adds some insight into helping you understand maybe some of what was written and some of the meanings of things that aren't intuitive uh, if you're not familiar with with that mm-hmm. geographic area. Yeah, and and to your point about it kind of interrogating scripture and, and some of that, you know, I do think, I was reminded recently uh, listening to a, a rabbi that he was, a rabbi was talking about how, you know, Israel's name literally means to wrestle with God. So the, the name that God's people are given means to, to wrestle with God. And so that it is kind of baked into the identity of God's people to, to wrestle with God, to wrestle with scripture, to wrestle with what we're supposed to, to do with all that, how we make sense of all of it and, and how we live it out. So it is, it certainly seems to be a, a scriptural thing to do, a faith building thing to do and something we have good, good precedent for and, and is in our heritage. And so with all that said, I want to do want to get into some of this now. So um, a lot of my thoughts, you know, I, I referenced Walter Brueggemann on, on Sunday a couple of times. He's been a proponent of, of some of these, these ideas and theories, specifically kind of as you mentioned. It's, there's, there's many theory, names that it kind of goes by, but the documentary theory, as you mentioned, Terry, is, is a common kind of idea for this idea that, that Genesis specifically and the, the Pentateuch to a certain extent represents kind of a compilation of works from different authors who are put together by an editor or editors at, at some point. And another scholar who I've taken a lot of thoughts from is Pete Inns, who I've referenced before in other places too. And he wrote the essay that I'll, I'll provide a link for in the description. But this is one of the things he wrote kind of as a summation of his thoughts. He says, the Pentateuch as we know it was not authored out of whole cloth by a second millennium Moses but it is the end product of a complex literary process, written, oral, or both, that did not come to a close until sometime after the return from exile. So again, that idea that that I brought up in the sermon, that this seems to be, under one theory, kind of a response to Israel wrestling with God and and their experience in the exile. And I think one of the things that that ends does well is to walk through kind of several questions that arose in given the content content of the Pentateuch and how that has led to kind of a progression of theories and explanations about the nature of of the writing of what we have there over really several hundred years of kind of biblical scholarship and and biblical what we would call biblical criticism of kind of trying to figure things out like who wrote it and when was it written. And so there are a few reasons for this, again, that we can take from the text itself. And so one of them is that the entire Pentateuch is written in third person and in the past tense, that it seems to be referencing things that happened long ago, which isn't necessarily how you would be writing about it if you were kind of writing about it in the moment. And so there are several places where it appears as if the, the writing references, again, things that happened long ago, as if you're looking back, as if you're re- recounting a story from the distant past. We see this in a few places in Genesis. One of them is in, in Genesis twelve six. It says, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And so some have taken the second half of that verse to say, well, this seems to be suggesting Sometime later, 
when Canaanites were no longer in the land. And so you're looking back and that the author, the editor is saying, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. We see this a few times in Deuteronomy, specifically at the end of Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy 34, there's some references kind of to the end of Moses's life. And there it says, And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, but to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Uh, so if you're going to kind of think about that, now some would say, if those who hold to kind of the Moses written tradition would say, well, this is just Joshua or someone else coming back after the fact and kind of adding in that line to what Moses has written. Uh, but even still, it seems to be something that's written much later, just given the context. It wouldn't seem to be something that Joshua comes, around, comes by and adds right after that fact. Because to say, to this day, no one knows where his grave is, seems to be something that you're looking way back in the distant past, almost as if saying, even all this time later, we still don't know where Moses' grave is. And then even closer to the end of that chapter, towards the end of Deuteronomy, it says, uh, since then, since Moses' death, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face and who did all these signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt. So again, it seems to be placing some some emphasis on the fact that time has passed, and in this great deal of time that has passed since Moses' death, no prophet has risen up like him. Now again, you can have some different approaches to that. Maybe this is something someone added later, but for whatever reason, it seems to be written long after Moses had, had died. Any thoughts on, any, on those couple of things? I've got a couple more, Terry, but I want to pause and see. Do you have any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, I think even the most ardent supporter that Moses literally wrote every verse of all of the Pentateuch would exclude his own death uh, and say, well, of course, he didn't write that. Uh, but as you point out... Well, but there is, there is one theory... Um, so we've talked about Midrash and some Jewish thought. There is one Jewish Midrash thought that it is the bones of Moses who wrote that statement. Okay, I'll just, I'll just go with that. <laughs> just let that one sit. <laughs> uh, that, that, that one has never caught on very well. Uh, it doesn't seem no. to have, no, but the, to the point that there are many theories about yes. how this all came to be. I, I think you bring up a good point that in those that just kind of kind of as a knee-jerk say, well, Joshua wrote that. Uh, when you think about from the, you know, Moses dies and immediately Joshua takes over the leadership and then they go into the land. Uh, but this specifically talks about no prophet has arisen. And, and, and so it just doesn't fit with that segment from Moses to Joshua. It doesn't seem like something Joshua would have said. Prophet it seems probably like wasn't somebody, a word, yeah. Yeah, it seems like something after, you know, at least after the time of Joshua, when you get in, at least into the judges uh, or later, when you get into the, you know, like Elijah and Elisha and those where, you know, you, you think about the mighty works of Elijah and then of Elisha. Um, uh, and those were, you know, those were powerful prophets and it's much more meaningful to say, well, Moses was greater than them. You know, look at the thing, look at the mighty works right. uh, that God enacted through Moses. Yeah, that's um, true. If you're saying that right after Moses died, it doesn't carry much weight. Whereas if you're saying it to people who have a context of kind of a, 
a lengthy list of prophets in mind, it sounds much weightier. Yeah, and, and, and you may bring this up too, but you know, here it's talking about how great Moses was and nobody, no other prophet's ever been like that. And then I've, you, know, you and I have talked about the, another verse in there where it talks about Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth, which, which would feel extremely awkward to be writing about yourself. Uh, and then when you certainly book, bookend it to this comment that no prophet was ever as great as Moses, those just are not things you write about yourself. Yes. Yeah, probably not. Yes. The, specifically there, it says uh, that Moses was more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. So it doesn't seem to be the thing that the most humble person in the, in the world, in the earth would, would actually write about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've referenced that. That was Numbers chapter 12 about the Moses's humility. So it's not like it comes at the end of the chapter or the end of the book. Yeah. It's just it's something that's like, thrown into the middle of one of the, yeah. of one of the, yeah, of, of, of that chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, another, you, you mentioned the word prophet being used there. It may be a time when, when that wouldn't have otherwise been used. That is another reference is in, in Genesis 36. This is Genesis 36, 31. Uh, it goes through kind of a list of kings who, re- who reigned in Edom or Edom. And it says, these were the kings who reigned there before any Israelite king reigned. And so again, that's just something listed in the middle of this kind of long list, something in the middle of, of the book there in Genesis 36, and wouldn't have been language that anyone at that time would have used. Again, it would have had to be something that, that came about after there were Israelite kings and, and that you, you have that as a reference point to kind of look back on. And so those are just a few of kind of the differences that we see in in language, in looking back, that, that seem to point to this is a description of, a, of, of events and stories that have, again, probably been passed down orally and, and in some type of written form, probably for generations, that are now being kind of put together in a more orderly and organized fashion. Yeah, I think um, one of the other passages that's often used is the one from Genesis 14, where Abraham goes to, or Abram goes to rescue his nephew Lot, and um, he. It says, uh, "This is Genesis 14, verse 14." Says, "When uh, Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men, born in his household, and he went and pursued as far as Dan, uh, which is in the northern part of." Uh, Israel at the time of the 12 tribes, uh, but the, the area of Dan did not exist at the time of Abram. Um, you know, that was one of the 12 children of Jacob, uh, and that land was given. So, and again, so that points to later authorship, at least having some component to the, to the writing or the editing of this, and we see that even in the New Testament, where you will be reading a story, and then all of a sudden, you know, I mentioned the whole story of the woman caught in the adultery, but uh, there are other aspects where, like one scripture or two scriptures, are in brackets. Uh, I, I think, if I'm remembering right, the Ethiopian or what we used to call the Ethiopian eunuch Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, where after Philip teaches. 
the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian says, here's water, you know, what prohibits me or what prevents me from being baptized? And a lot of the the Bibles growing up, the Bible I had said, well, if you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ, you know, and then you may, and then they go down to the water. But now my NIV has this little footnote that says most of the earliest manuscripts don't have that verse. That's not there. So, well, who put it? Well, you know, I think a lot of people think, well, that as people were copying the text, uh, the different scribes or or whoever was doing that added some editorial or to make it easier to understand or to make a bigger point. Not that it would change the meaning overall, but they were adding modern day commentary to something that wasn't originally there. And so, you know, I think you'll hear as we go through this that I think Moses wrote things down uh, what I just don't know is uh, how does all of the writings of Moses come to be put together in a final form and read in the way that we read it now? Um, you, you've mentioned some internal evidences that would point against Moses being the sole author of it. Uh, I might mention some internal evidences that point to Moses as being uh, the author. Let me just mention a few things. Is is that okay? Go for it. All right. So one is in the in Exodus itself. It mentions uh, in one case, kind of a totally random thing. Uh, while they're go- going through wandering through the wilderness, the Amalekites attack them, and this is where Joshua has to go out and is. Uh, Moses, as long as he can hold his staff out, they're winning. And, you know, when his staff drops, they lose. But uh, God tells Moses to write this down in your book. uh, My promise about the Amalekites that they will never inherit, you know, the land that uh, they'll always be excluded. And then in Exodus, that's in Exodus 17 and in Exodus 24, it says that Moses wrote down everything that God had essentially told him at Sinai. And then in Deuteronomy 31, towards the end of Moses' life, it says that Moses wrote down all of the law and the words of God, and then he gives that written account to the priest and the elders there. So Moses is writing something. He's writing down his understanding of what God has told him. You know, you think of the Ten Commandments, but Moses wrote a whole lot. Uh, You know, they were at Sinai for a year, so he wrote a whole lot. And then he passes this on as Joshua is about to take the reins. And so he does those things. And I think Jewish and Christian tradition, you know, they refer to the whole Pentateuch as the law of Moses or the books of Moses or the book of Moses. And I think where growing up, I tended to any... Any discussion about Moses not being the author, it felt like an attack on the validity of Scripture because I think probably the key for me growing up as a Christian, why it was, why sometimes it felt like it was a stinging attack is because it was also, it felt like the way it was being kind of conflated together, it was attacking the authenticity of God and Jesus because you have Jesus in Matthew 
referring to, you know, the words of Moses. What did Moses say? Moses wrote about me. He'll say uh, when they had questions about divorce, you know, he'll say, well, you know, why they, the people say, well, why did Moses command that a certificate of divorce? And then Jesus would answer that because Moses knew how hard, you know, your heart was. Uh, Jesus refers to the Torah as the book of Moses in Matthew 12. And on the road to Emmaus, Jesus uh, opens up the, the, those two disciples' eyes by, and starting in the Moses and prophets and the Psalms. And so in many ways, just Moses, the books of Moses was used as a shorthand way to say the Torah. It was kind of synonymous with the Torah. Now, I think where we conflate that is, yes, if you said the books of Moses, you meant the Torah. And clearly Moses was writing and was recording things at Sinai. He, he was, it was very important for him uh, to make sure that the people understood what God's decrees were, to the blessings and the curses there, and to hand that over uh, you know, you and I have joked about Moses and, and Deuteronomy saying, uh, when you go into the land, you're going to screw up. You know, I'm going to give you all these rules and this is what's going to happen if you mess up. And you know what? You're going to mess up. <laughs> uh, and so, but still wanting to do everything in his power, giving them the written documents to go by, not just his oral tradition, but actually a written document. What we, what we don't know is you know how much of that original written document was passed down or was it altered or was it changed was it added to and almost everything that i ever have seen where it talks about internal evidences for the moses writing the entire torah doesn't reference anything about genesis it's always exodus through deuteronomy which is again clearly more relevant to moses because that essentially starts with his birth and ends with his death. And so it's really the life of Moses, which that makes total sense. But Genesis is very different. You know, it, uh, I, I think... And even Genesis Moses, 1 through 11 is kind of different from, from the rest of Genesis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah even just the, the prose and, the, and how it's written there. But let me just pause. I have other things that we can talk about. But those, I think... It needs to be said that there are, an inter- there are internal evidences of why Christians and, and Jews alike would say that Moses was the author. Uh, it's because throughout, and there's multiple times in the Old Testament where they just, as a shorthand, refer to the law of Moses or the books of Moses, and they mean the Torah. Uh, and so even throughout the Old Testament, when they were referring to the Torah, they would often just call it the books of Moses. So that tradition has existed for as long as the Torah has existed, probably. Yeah, and yeah, that's, that's good perspective, and I think um, a, a good thing to, to keep in mind and to include. And, and yeah, I, don't, I think most would not deny that, that Moses certainly has a part in it. Um, and as you said, I mean, he's obviously writing stuff and giving speeches Deuteronomy is basically you know speeches that that uh, that Moses gives so he's he's passing things along in in written and oral form it seems as he goes along um i i think yeah the the question would be does what ends up being produced 
in more or less the form that we have it represent those exact things or are Moses's kind of writings and, and words leading to what ends up getting compiled by someone else or a group of people or whatever uh, hundreds of years later. And yeah, so I think that's, that's the question. And as we've said, it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a make or break thing that we have to decide and, <laughs> and, and choose, but I do think, I think it's interesting for us to talk about and, and think about. And, you know, one of the reasons that I've started to kind of think that it's interesting to me at least. So kind of, you know, kind of thinking about, so why does this matter? Maybe from a little bit of a different perspective. One of the ways that I've thought about it kind of recently for me is just that if, if you kind of gave me the assignment now to write about my college experience, um, my, to write about my four years at ACU, it would sound very different than if you gave me the same assignment while I was at ACU. Like if you told college age Warren, I want you to document your four years in college and kind of write a memoir about it. Um, I would have done that. And if you told me now to go back and do the same thing, it would just sound very different. It would have a very different feel. I would probably include different things. I would highlight different things just because now I'm looking back from a different context than what I was in the moment. And that doesn't mean that either of those are inaccurate. They're just going to be, they're just going to highlight different things, tell different, uh, have a different slant on things, whatever it might be. And, you know, like I was thinking when I was in college, it was a common thing for me, either with some friends or individually to go wander around Blockbuster, you know, on, on a night looking for what DVD I was going to rent. And I would have a completely different perspective looking back on that now than I would have in the moment where... I don't even, I think all the blockbusters have now closed, right? <laughs> or there was a Netflix documentary about the last blockbuster, but I didn't, I didn't watch it, which is quite ironic that Netflix has a documentary about blockbuster, but, um, but just different things. And, you know, Ashley and I didn't start dating until after college. And so we, we knew each other while we were in college, but never dated in college. And so if I was writing my story in college, she probably would have not, you know, been a very prominent figure in what I was writing. But if I'm looking back on it now, she, she would be, and I would highlight kind of our interactions more than I would have at the time. And, and I don't know, it's, I think for me, that just makes it interesting to say, it is it, at least something to consider and think about, that I think it helps us to, to kind of consider what, what story is being told here. And, and that if this is a reflection looking back, I think it, we would have to think that it's it's done for a purpose and a reason, and that's kind of what I ended up kind of going with on Sunday, that that it helps us to maybe put it into into some context or at least consider some different con some different possible context about what is this story trying to tell us and what's what's the purpose of what is being communicated here. No, I no I, I totally agree, and I think uh, even if the bulk of it. Uh, was just sort of recompiled or redacted and put together. Um, again, God's truth is still found in those those writings. And I still, at least, again, it's not critical to my faith, but I still feel that Moses compiled a good chunk of that. Now, how that was kept in perpetuitum, 
I don't know. Uh, I will say that the Torah appears to be totally intact before the exile. You have like King Josiah finding the Torah scroll, and, and he was a king before the exile. Uh, and so you have the Torah as a written document in some form. Now, what we don't know is that post-exile, which it seems that there's evidence that at least in its form that we had it to say that Jesus had it in the first century. Uh, so the exile occurred in, I think, around 586 B.C., uh, and King Josiah lived sometime in the 600s. So uh, before the exile here, you have the Torah being found, um, and then the people repenting when they read it. Um, but there does seem to be at least some compilation and repiling, and you have Ezra coming in, you know, after the people get back and, and re, re-instructing the people because they've lived 70 years in Babylon at that point. Um, that's a long time. I'm not even, I'm old, but I'm not even 70 yet. And so to, to have more than my lifetime apart from God and apart from, you know, the community, uh, at least the community around the temple is, is faith altering. And, um, and it does impact how we understand things. And I think, the, as you pointed out in your sermon, uh, what would be very relevant for the rabbis and the priests at the time of the, um, you know, the people coming back from the exile is to help them understand, are they still God's people? What is God's plan for them? And the Genesis story, I think, is very impactful for that. You have, almost in parallel, you have... God basically saying, here's my commandment. Don't eat this tree. Good things are going to happen. You get to live in this beautiful land as long as you're in relationship with me. But if you reject me, if you seek your own way, then you'll be punished and you'll be, you'll be basically exiled from this beautiful land that I'm providing you. Um, and so you have a very much a parallel. But you see in the Genesis story that God was still with his people even though they were no longer in the garden. Um, and so again, you can, it, would, it would not be hard to bring um, meaningful stories out of Genesis for a post-exile people. And um, I think we see that also in New Testament. You talked about where you are in your faith journey and how you frame that is going to look very differently depending on what's going on. And in Old Testament literature, uh, the majority of the time, if, if God's people are suffering, it's because they've done something wrong. Uh, that's not universally so. You have Jeremiah being thrown in pits and things like that. But by and large, uh, especially when the entire nation is suffering, it's because of their rebellion against God. And now you see almost a reverse of that in New Testament language where the church is being persecuted, and it's because of their faithfulness to God that they're being persecuted. And so, again, your situation causes you to reinterpret how God is working in your life, how he's working in history. But I I, I always found that very ironic that, uh, you know, if I run into 
major stumbling blocks and I feel like there's a barrier and I, and I thought God wanted me to do something, but I, every time I try to do it, it just seems like I'm, I'm thwarted in that effort. Is it because God doesn't want me to or is God testing me to see if I really want it bad enough and am I gonna genuinely be faithful to, to his calling? And so I think that's one of the things of modern day interpretation is how do I interpret God in my life in view of what I think is the nature of God and how does God deal with his creation? Yeah, and I think that, I think that is, again, I think that's true of us today, and I think it's woven into what we have in Scripture. Uh, again, so here's a, a quote that I had written down that I think goes with that. This is, again, this is another quote from Pete Enns from a book of his this time where he says, the creation stories are to be understood within this larger framework as part of a larger theologically driven collection of writings that answers ancient questions of self-definition, not contemporary ones of scientific interest. In view of who we are and where we are, what do these ancient texts say to us about being the people of God today? And he's saying that question at the end there is what he's saying in his mind or what the writers, the editors of Genesis are trying to answer. So in view of who we are, where we are, what do these texts, what do these stories say to us about being the people of God today? And then he goes on to say basically the same thing is happening in the New Testament. We've got this huge earth-changing event, literally, of Jesus coming in, and now the New Testament writers are, are trying to say, okay, so now what does our past and our history look like in light of Jesus? And how do we now continually go back and make sense of our story, our heritage, uh, who we are, who, what we're supposed to do in light of now this huge thing that's come into the world? And so, you know, there he says, with each citation and allusion, we see illusion with an A, with each citation and illusion, we see the New Testament authors at work rethinking and transforming Israel's story in view of this new thing that God has done in Christ, bringing past story and present reality into conversation. And I think that continues to be our task today, this task of bringing past story in the, uh, the, the inspired word of God as we have it, into reality with the nature of God, with how we are perceiving and discerning God to be moving amongst us today, and what does that look like for us to be the people of God today in our context as we are. As we are. And I think that for me is, is again, the, a helpful way for me to approach the beginning of Genesis because I think approaching it theologically helps us to resist the urge that we that we have felt at times to sort of make the beginning of Genesis say something about the age of the universe or to make it a scientific document. Um, and, and to recognize there are simply modern scientific questions that don't fit with the story that Genesis is, is trying to tell. It seems to me. Yeah, I had eggs. No, I echo those thoughts. And I had one other thought uh, when it comes to, you know, who put together the Torah in the form that we have it now. And I think growing up, I had this view of inspiration as almost being God's dictation of, uh, I'm not going to count, you know, it's like God speaking. I'm not going to count on your personal experience. I'm just going to tell you what to say. Uh, And you get into all kinds of trouble because then you get different styles of Greek and different, you know, a robust vocabulary, not a very robust vocabulary, different authors. And so it, it just doesn't fit that 
understanding as well. But I, I find it instructional when I look at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, let me just read that real quick, just the first couple of verses where Luke starts off, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as were handed down to us by those from whom the first, who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So first of all, you know, they're getting these stories from eyewitnesses. He says, therefore, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and it seemed good for me also to write an orderly account for you, my excellent Theophilus. And so here's Luke saying, I'm going to record all of this. And he's not saying I sat down or I went out in the wilderness for three months and God inspired me to write all this. He's saying, I've talked to eyewitnesses. I've done my due diligence. I've talked to as many people as I could. And here's the account as best as I can tell it. And I'm going to lay this out for you because uh, it's impactful. And, uh, you know, there is that trust that God is going to work through that. But he does his homework. He goes out and he interviews the witnesses. He gets the stories and he puts them down in a way that it's still useful nearly 2,000 years later. But it was, uh, as we used to say, there's inspiration, but there's perspiration too. That sometimes you got to put the work in. Um, uh, even then, even biblical authors had to put the work in to know uh, to be able to faithfully retell the story of God and, and, and Jesus. Yeah, that's good. Well, we spent a lot of time on, on authorship and kind of origins of Genesis. I want to get to a little bit of Genesis 1 here for a minute, but before we do, I had a couple other notes on authorship. I just want to mention one briefly, though, but that there are, um, and I think this is something that could point to kind of a number of different ideas. But if you go to the beginning of Genesis, one of the interesting things about the first, really even just the first four chapters of Genesis, is that in Hebrew, God is referred to by different names over the course of even just the first four chapters. So in chapter one, the name for God is Elohim. Then in chapters two and three, God is referred to as Yahweh Elohim. And then in chapter four, he's referred to as Yahweh. And so again, you can take that and make some different conclusions. One is that perhaps uh, the understanding or the relationship with God is sort of transforming and moving over the course of those chapters. Maybe it reflects kind of a deepening understanding or, or personal connection or relationship with God, however you might want to phrase that. Others would look at it and say it points to different writers who are writing these different parts. And now as they're being compiled together, the editor or editors are just keeping the different references to God and, and allowing those to exist alongside each other in the same text. And you see the same thing sort of where you see uh, repetitiveness of stories in certain parts of the Pentateuch, including in Genesis. Even in Genesis 1 and 2, you can read Genesis 1 and 2 where it's basically two different kind of tellings of the creation story. And you could either see Genesis 2 as sort of building on Genesis 1 or almost as a telling it from a different perspective uh, or point of view or, or kind of writing style. And so, again, you know, you can have some different thoughts on that. But if you have this idea of kind of an editor or, or stories being put together, you can see that as just kind of recognizing there are, there are a couple of different kind of traditions of this and, and that Genesis doesn't seem too concerned with reconciling which one is completely factually accurate, but just putting them both in there and letting them speak for themselves. 
Yeah, one other uh, aspect of that that uh, kind of builds on that is uh, some people have divided Genesis into multiple little sections, and each section starts with the phrase, this is the account of, or maybe some that, that word, uh, teledoth, in Hebrew, uh, which either can be translated, this is the account, uh, or it, you, you could interpret it as the genealogy of, kind of the account of this is where this person comes from. But if you just read through very quickly, or if you just pull it up, uh, it, the whole book of Genesis is punctuated with, this is the account of, and then it will tell a story. And so some people have speculated that, uh, whether it was Moses or someone else who put Genesis together, you know, they're taking all these oral traditions and then saying, okay, I'm going to shift. Now, this is the oral tradition that pertains to Adam. This is the one that pertains to Abraham uh, and so forth, or pertains to Noah. But anyway, Genesis is punctuated throughout, throughout, throughout its story with uh, those little um, uh, preferences. Yeah, good point. Well, I do want us to spend a little bit of time on Genesis 1. And so I, uh, I talked about the first few verses of Genesis 1 and kind of talked then conceptually about the rest of what we find there in Genesis 1 this past Sunday. And then coming up, the, at least the Sunday that will follow this podcast, we'll kind of move to Genesis 2. But So I wanted us to spend at least a few minutes on, on what we read in Genesis 1. I've got a few thoughts we, uh, we won't devote equal amount of time to, to this conversation as the authorship one, but uh, I think it's at least worth going over. It's one of those chapters that kind of, as I said, Sunday can become so familiar to us that we just speed right on through it. But maybe to get us started with kind of Genesis 1, Terry, I'm curious if you just have any general thoughts on how do you read Genesis 1? Do you kind of have an overall thought or approach to it as you, as you read what, what is recorded there in the first chapter? Um, so my, as you referenced, it's like, what is my understanding today? Right. Yeah. 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 Of this. Um, uh, so one is, uh, when I did that 50 week study, uh, I was using a, I don't read Hebrew, but I was using a Hebrew study Bible and I was using several other commentaries and they really helped me because they brought out kind of the the nuance of the Hebrew writing. And we lose so much in the translation because the English words don't always match up with the the symbolism and the parallelism. And uh, you and I have talked about even just the word play of like uh, the word Adam is Adam uh, like uh, Adama, so man essentially is dirt brought out of dirt, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and so there's all of these words that have uh, powerful meanings in there, and so one is, I think there is some. When I when I read through this, I look at just the big points. I think I can I can I can dig into the individual topics, but for me it's not as interesting to say, are these literal days? That just doesn't feel like anything that's impactful to my faith or not. What I do feel like is impactful to my faith, which is what you brought up on Sunday, is who is this God and why do I exist and does God still care about me? And is this a God who 
can and will be a part of my life. And you just see, um, I think that's how this, this story of the origins, you know, it, I started to mention that, uh, you know, the word Genesis just means the origin, or I think in Hebrew, it's just, it's the chapter or the books called In the Beginning, just uh, Bereshit or whatever that Hebrew word is. Um, but every good superhero story, you know, eventually has to have an origin story. And so here's kind of the origin. Um, and the thing about this is, I don't want to say that, I, I don't want to boost our own ego by saying, look how important we are. But really all of Genesis 1 is creating a place for man to live. And so, uh, and, and more than that, more important than that, a place for man to live in relationship with, with God. And so you have essentially God creating this space. He creates light and dark, and then you see uh, a little later on, now he fills up the light and dark with sun and moon and stars. You know, he creates air and water, and then he fills it up with fish and birds a few verses later. And then he creates land, and then several verses later, he fills it up with animals, and then ultimately uh, he creates something in his own image, something special, a special creation of man. So one is it tells us how precious man is. We are in God's image. Uh, and two is, again, not to puff ourselves up, but to look around and say, God loved us so much that he created not only the garden, but he created the entire, literally, the universe around that garden just for man's experience so that he and mankind could be in relationship. So that's how I view that. Now, I could get into the, the details about you know, how does this fit with biology, geology, and all of those things? But again, those are less interesting, and I think those are going to be the, my, the things that I think I understand that are likely to change. Um, and, and I'm okay with that. I think the more we know about science, it changes things. Um, you know, I think we're all very comfortable that when the Bible talks about the heart of man, it's not talking about the biologic heart uh, even though there's references to blood. Uh, but we, sometimes we get hung up on other things uh, in Genesis. And Genesis is a hard book. Uh, but one of the other things, I'll just wrap it up, that when I look through it, it actually would not be all that remarkable just to write a historical account. That's kind of dry. Uh, but when you read through Genesis as a, as a book of literature, it's as rich as any book, as any epic novel you could ever read. And just so much is baked into it. The parallelism, the symbolism, the repetitive stories. You are supposed to remember, oh yeah, this story is just like this other story that I've already read about. And it's like, we keep messing up in the same ways and we keep doing the same things. And, and I think that was also, um, again, helpful is to know is that God wants good things for us, and we keep messing it up when we seek to say we no longer need God. I'm not dependent on God. I don't need to be in relationship with God. Bad things tend to happen. Uh, even not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with one another gets messed up. You, you, you have shame uh, in 
tension in the relationship with Adam and Eve between each other, not just with God, but they felt shame with each other uh, as well. And so just when you break that relationship with God and you push him out of your life and say, I don't need God, your world starts getting ugly. And you see the world getting so ugly that God hits the reboot and essentially washes it clean and starts over uh, later on in Genesis. So uh, that was more than just a one-minute take, but... (laughs) That's good. No, I I agree uh, kind of with what you're saying just about your approach to, to Genesis 1 in general. And I do think that... Yeah, you know, one of the things I was thinking just reading through it again this week is that I think in the past... Um, I, I probably would have, or I know, I know I was more focused on kind of the, the phrases like, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day, the fifth day, whatever, and kind of pointed to that as kind of, you know, what were in my mind at, at that point, kind of proof of, of kind of literal days of creation. But as I find, as I found myself reading through it this time, what I was more drawn to this time was the repetition of the phrases, and God said, and it was so that that is also repeated each time. Each time it's this idea of, and so that's kind of what I referenced, you know, in Sunday's sermon was God said this, and then each time, and it was so. Uh, This repetitive idea of God saying something, and then whatever God says ends up happening. And I think with, with the creation story that is repeated and that holds up all the way until Genesis 2, which we're not necessarily talking about today, or, or, Gen- or when, when Adam and Eve, I should say, you know, decide to eat of the fruit. Um, that is the first time where it's like God said something and it was not so, it seems. <laughs> um, that they, they decide to, to not make what God said so. And, but I think in the, in the reading of Genesis 1... That, that was sort of what stuck out to me this time and, and what I noticed. And even as you were talking about, you know, kind of how Genesis 1 sets up our connection with, with God, our relationship with God, and kind of our special status or whatever you want to say kind of about man to God, I think it also establishes our connection to, uh, to creation and to earth and to the other living creatures around us which, as you said, is continued in Genesis 2 as well, where it talks about Adam coming out of the ground, and there's that wordplay there between dirt and, and Adam and, and the similarities there in Hebrew. So there's this connection, even in the creation of Adam to the dirt. But, you know, when it talks about uh, creating man in Genesis 1, it says, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, or have dominion over it. And I've heard that idea of dominion there referred to as something like like what a shepherd would have over his flock. And, and I think that's helpful imagery because you can take these concepts of ruling earth and subduing it and having dominion on it, and you can take that in a very harsh and negative sense. But that doesn't seem to be what God wants for us and, and how he envisions us interacting with creation. That it's it's something that he sort of in some ways, abdicates um, governance over to us as people. Which again, if you're thinking from a medieval kind of standpoint of thinking about gods and people, even that could be a revolutionary concept. That God would say, here, I've created this world for you, and I want you to 
to be in charge of it, to shepherd it, to, to take care of it, to be the caretakers of this. And even that seems to be sort of just very much against what, what a lot of other understandings would have been at that time, but also a way that we can totally take that very much out of context if we kind of take it to the other extreme. Yeah, no, I, I think there's very much a, a harmony and a balance that's ex- expected. You have that balance between God coming down and visiting the garden. You know, it says that God walked in the garden and you have mankind and then you have man uh, taking care of the garden. I like, I like that phrase, being like a caretaker of the garden. Um, I, I think of the example of, let's say, as a parent, you give your child, all right, we're moving into this new house. Look, you have a brand new room. You're going to get this room all to yourself. And here's your nice bed, and here's all these toys. And then a few weeks later, you go into the room's trashed, and all the toys are broken. And the kid's like, what? This was my room. These are my toys. I can do anything I want. Well, it, it's, it's not going to be a warm, fuzzy feeling as a parent that you have that he's trashed his living space there. And you see when man is out of relationship with God that that harmony is broken. And now now the ground rebels. Now it says, you know, the weeds are coming up and the thistles and he has to, you know, by the sweat of his brow, he's going to live now. And so even the earth is cursed because of this curse. Uh, It has consequences uh, because of that. Um, Just, oh, I'm shifting gears a little bit, but one little quirky thing about the seven, the, the six days of creation and then the seventh is, I didn't notice this until I was reading it just uh, recently, is I always thought that at, at the end of every day, God said it was good. But on day two, he doesn't say that. I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Maybe nothing. It's when, you know, it's that whole thing about the expanse above, above and the expanse below. You know, it's kind of like, he just moves on. He just says, and that was the second day. He doesn't say it was good. Now, I think it is good. <laughs> and again, I don't think it means anything, but that's just probably where there's maybe some midrash there. Of the rabbis would say, well, why, why didn't God why say, didn't God that? say that was good? That's interesting. And the other little quirky things about Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2 is Genesis 1 ends with God saying, uh, I give you every seed-bearing plant, talking to man, I gave you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. These will be yours for food. Uh-uh-uh, not every, not every tree. <laughs> uh, and so, again, you might, you know, I, I think if you build your whole understanding on Scripture with real narrow understandings of how to interpret it, your, your faith is going to constantly be challenged. Um, like uh, to go back to authorship, uh, you know, you start having to think, well, Moses could have written all that, even about his death, you know, as you said, because his bones came back and did it. Or God told him what to write about your own death. So I'm going to just, you know, prophetically, you know, he was a prophet, Moses was a prophet, so he could, he could prophesy, uh, uh, you know, which usually just means to be able to tell the truth about what God says, not necessarily foretell the future. But in this case, you could say, well, maybe Moses could predict his own death and write about it. But again, even that breaks down. But you start 
it feels like you're having to contrive stories to 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 stick to your original conclusion because you are you just can't let go of your understanding because that's the way you were brought up and talking about understanding and not wanting to let go and creation uh, my family was very conservative growing up, and I can remember the preacher was essentially trying to reconcile all of creation and dinosaurs. And essentially, in my family, my, my father believed and instilled in us when we were little, not anymore, but when we were little, that dinosaurs are totally made up. You know, you know that was in this little bitty conservative church, not probably not even a mainstream church, just a very, very conservative church with whatever, you would have liked it, Warren, whatever the preacher said, that was it. No one questioned it. You know, the preacher says women can't wear pants, they can't wear pants. Uh, But I remember just my whole faith being challenged because I had this view that dinosaurs weren't real. And, And all of a sudden, it just all started to unravel. And it's like, well, if that's not true, then what else isn't true? Uh, and so I don't want people's faith to unravel because they've wrapped it so tightly around things that are not core, core to their belief in who God and who Jesus are. And in, in fact, what the Bible is. Uh, you, you referenced Pete Enns, who I know writes a lot about what is the Bible and what do we do with it. And you know, I think that's really important as we study the Bible is what do we use the Bible for? And I think a lot of people want to lay their history book out or their geology book out and, and hold their Bible out with it and just kind of read in parallel. And they get upset, like if history doesn't totally 100% match up with, say, the Chronicles or Daniel or something like that. Uh, and again, those don't shake my faith anymore. Uh, but they did. Um, and maybe they should more. I don't know. I don't know what's the right answer. But as you started out saying, this is my understanding. This is how you understand today. it right now. Yeah. yeah. But I think there's quirky little things in Genesis that are fun to point out. Uh, there are. Yeah. I think those are good thoughts. And kind of along those ideas of some of the quirkiness, one of the things that I had noticed just reading through it again was that um, I don't, I just never, you know, one of these things we read through it and you don't notice things, but on the fifth day, the, the fifth day, quote unquote, when God creates basically birds and fish, the language there, because so he creates them, then it says the language is God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. And, and so then it continues and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. But that first phrase, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number is repeated basically word for word about people, about mankind. Um, and I don't know, I don't think I had noticed that the first, the first group that God blesses and tells to be fruitful and increase is actually fish and birds, not man, that he gives the same instruction to man. But in between that is the, you know, the land living animals and they are not given the same, the same imperative. So to your question about the second day, not being good, uh, land living animals are not blessed and are not given the imperative to be fruitful and increase, which is, uh, again, probably nothing, but it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, just one other little quirky thing, since we're into quirky things, that actually challenged me as a young adult is, you know, it's like, okay, so where in the creation story were whales 
you know, in marine mammals made? Well, they live in the water, so I guess they would be made with the fish. I guess that's where they would be when the fish were made. But then we would get all upset with the Jonah story if someone said, oh, he was swallowed by a whale. Said, no, no, he was swallowed by a big fish, not a whale. Because in our mind, the ancient Hebrews would have differentiated between uh, air-breathing, you know, aqueous mammals <laughs> uh, versus fish. And yet in the creation story, there's no differentiation. It's just if you live in the water, you live in the water. Uh, whether you're a mammal yeah. or a fish. Yeah, I said so. fish, but yeah, I think, t- as it says there, uh, let the water teem with living creatures, at least how the, is the NIV says it. So, yeah, no designation of, of what what we would classify as types there, just if it lives in the water. Yeah, yeah. So, But uh, I think that's where, uh, and in our Sunday morning class here, um, at the time of this podcast, we're finishing up the book, uh, misreading scripture through Western eyes, we superimpose our own understanding and our lens on ancient texts, and we think, well, this is the way I would view that. And so surely they had the exact same understanding. But there's nothing special or privileged about the way we classify life today. I mean, it's purely a somewhat arbitrary way to classify life just to help us kind of put it into convenient buckets so I can study it uh, and uh, classify it. Whereas, you know, there's nothing in the creation story that would be specific towards uh, mm-hmm. all of that. So, Yeah, I think that's been, you know, just kind of thinking about that and providing order and, and how we classify things. I think, to me, the most interesting thing about going back for this kind of series and and reading different people's thoughts and stuff. The most interesting, one of the most interesting things to me has been just the prominence of this thought that in the ancient world, there was this dominant question of, of chaos and how did chaos come to be tamed and this kind of pre-creation existence of chaos and how does that get dealt with? And and, you know, again, I think it's a theme you can see throughout a lot of the Old Testament of, of raging waters kind of seen as chaos and how chaos continues to come up. And taming that is certainly an important aspect of what's going on. And, um, you know, one image that I've seen for the, for the six days of creation is that on the first three days, God is basically creating space for what will fill it in days four through six. And so half of it is this idea of, of God. I think I used the imagery in the first, in the first week of this series of kind of clearing his workspace and he's getting his desk and his easel ready and then kind of filling it with stuff on days four through six, which is a little bit of a, uh, I know that's not technically what, what the text says, obviously, but, but that idea of God bringing about order and creating space on the first three days and then filling it in the, the next three days uh, does, I think, fit. And you can even look at the parallels of days one and four, for instance, and, and how there's parallels of one and four and, um, and two and five, and how some of those kind of parallel each other just with the idea of creating order and space and then filling it on the next three days. Yeah, and I think that probably is the big question being asked here is, uh, especially for the Jews, who are we? Where do we come from? 
uh, are we still God's people? And I think all of these point to that of, yes, all of mankind is God's creation, God's special creation. And then after you get through kind of the rebellious period of man, uh, and then you see Abraham come on the scene, now all of a sudden it just, you know, you see this uh, question being answered, uh, which would be not only important for Moses, but important for post-exile, is who are we as a community? And so regardless of whatever you think about authorship or when it was written, when it was compiled, or whether it was bits and pieces over time, those would be important things to tell people, whether, you're, whether you are a slave people coming out of Egypt, trying to become God's special people, or whether you're, you know, hundreds of years later, coming out of exile, coming back to reestablish yourself in a land that had been promised to your grandparents uh, that you haven't lived in for 70 years, and you need to rebuild a faith community, and you need to know who your identity is. Um, I think um, uh, when we were in Israel, uh, I don't think they still do this, but it used to be that all, uh, so everyone, everyone, they still do this, everyone of a certain age, uh, when you get out of high school, you are in the military, you know, there's a few exceptions, but most people are in the military, male, female, doesn't matter. And at least they used to take everyone up to Masada and, and tell them, this is where we've come from. You know, we were, uh, we've been nearly exterminated multiple times. And just remember that when you're out there defending this country is it's only by a miracle that we still exist today. And you're part of that miracle. And, and, uh, and knowing your story is important. And again, I think it was important for Moses to communicate that to the Israelites coming out of Egypt where they've lived as slaves for hundreds of years. And it's important for Ezra and Nehemiah to communicate that to the Jewish people when they return to that land after 70 years of being exiles and to come back to a country that looked nothing like it used to. Everything was burned down, everything was destroyed. And even the people that lived there then didn't want you to be there. Uh, and so it was an uphill climb. And you really had to have an origin story that you could really find uh, uh, some energy behind. It's kind of like our own origin stories for our country. Um, are, you know, are the stories about the Revolutionary War factual? Yes, they're based in history. Are they told from an American perspective? Yes, <laughs> they're very much told from an American perspective. Um, Again, they're good stories. They're based in fact uh, about the, uh, our ancestors. But again, there's some mythology about, built around that, uh, around uh, Washington and all of the other characters there. They're bigger than life. You know, we say that about a lot of heroes. They're bigger than life. And I think the Jewish people did that as well. Moses was bigger than life. Uh, and so you get that end of Deuteronomy. Moses was the greatest prophet ever. And he was, he was great. He was great. Uh, no doubt. And I don't take anything away from that. But, you know, we do the same thing today. We tell it from a certain perspective. And, uh, and I think that you're right. When we read Genesis, we need to maybe read it from different perspective, different lenses. 
what, it, what is the question I'm trying to answer now when I read Genesis? Am I reading it as a history book because I just want to know uh, about where does Israel come from? Or am I reading it from a faith perspective of wanting to know how is God relevant in my life and where do I come from and where am I going? Well, that's, that's probably a good thought to end us on and, and close out our thoughts. And so I appreciate that. And we've, we've thrown out a lot of stuff here today. So I uh, appreciate you, you taking some time to, to do this with me today, Terry. And, and uh, I always appreciate your, your perspective and, and uh, what you bring to these conversations. So thank you. Well, thank you for asking me. And again, I, uh, <laughs> it, it, took, it took a whole year to get through Genesis. So I, <laughs> I, I, I look forward to your abbreviated account. We're not going to be, uh, yeah, we won't be in it a year. But, uh, and we won't go through the whole, the whole chapter. But yeah, we could spend much longer than we're going to spend on just those first 11 chapters. So that's why, that's one of the reasons I'm, uh, I'm sort of grateful for the podcast. Because we can dig into some stuff a little more on podcast episodes for, for those who want a little more of the, the nuts and bolts and the, the grittiness of it. So uh, let, me, let me close us in, in prayer today and we'll be done for this episode. Father, thank you for instilling within us the capacity to, to explore and to discover and to ask questions and to, uh, to read your word with, with eyes that are are seeking what it might have to speak to us. So God, may, may you use the words of Genesis to instill within us faith as it has been doing to people for countless generations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.